Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by Pastor Abe Lee. He is preaching from Psalm 2. For those of you who are new, I want to introduce myself. My name is Abe. I get to serve here as pastor at Church of the Beloved. Um, Back in May, um, we started a sermon series on the book of Psalms. And for those, again, who have been with us for a minute and who are new, let me just remind you, the Psalms are an anthology of songs, of poems, and these songs uh, paint a picture of redemption. they're, They're songs of and poems of lament, of salvation, of wisdom, of justice, of redemption, and of joy. Um, And these psalms are intended to remind us, to encourage us, to draw us closer to our Father in heaven. That's why we wanted to focus on them over the past few months. Uh, Next week will be the last one that we look at. Now, last week, we looked at Psalm chapter 11. I want to remind us of it because it feeds into today's message, which is, This psalm showed us that to take refuge in God is to seek to be righteous, to be seen as fools in the world's eyes so that we can be seen as wise in God's eyes. And when we seek God as our refuge, He then provides us the power to face the chaos, the challenges that are being thrown at us every single day, whether they're from outside of us or from within us. And our refuge in God, I mentioned last week, comes when we come to God honestly, when we come to Him a little unhinged, so that by the power of His Word and by the power of His works, we can be transformed into the sisters and the brothers that God has always intended us to be. That was last week, and today we get to go deeper into the Psalms by looking at Psalm chapter 2, as Shelby just read for us. I want to tell you there's a a little story. There was a time... um, a few years ago when I just I had to cut off all ties with my mom and my dad. I decided that my relationship with them was so dysfunctional and was so toxic that the only thing that I could do was just stop talking to them, to cut them off. Now, to the parents who are in this room right now, you might be thinking, oh, no, we don't want our children to ever cut us off. Or maybe you do, I don't know. But I'll tell you this. You're probably wonderful parents. That was my story. And besides that, your kids are not here, so I won't tell them to leave you alone. Um, but this is this all happened when Suzette and I were living in California. We lived in California in San Francisco. My parents live in New York City, or outside New York City. And so I, I was never going to run into them by accident, right? And so the other thing is they can't speak English. And so the only way that I can communicate with them, because my, my Korean is horrendous, the only way I could do that was over the phone because I would have to use Konglish. And if you don't know what Konglish is, Konglish is was really bad Korean and English mixed together. So severing ties with them physically was going to be very easy. It was also pretty easy for me to sever ties with them emotionally. I, I don't know if this is true for you. Those of you who are children of Korean immigrants, my family doesn't know what the word emotion is, right? We were pretty stoic. We're pretty disconnected as a family. So there was really no emotional ties to sever with them. And if I'm being totally honest, that time in my life was very peaceful because there were no more arguments. There were no more disappointments. There was no more misunderstanding. It was just silence. But the issue is I was disobeying God 
when I did that. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, it says this. It says, honor everyone. Uh, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and that includes your parents, by the way. But in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, it says, honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God has given you. I was not doing either of those things. And for me, the only way for, uh, to address the problem, the only way for me to stop being disobedient to God's will was to stop running from God and start running to God by running to my problem. So I did. I flew to New York. I walked into my dad's church. He's a pastor there at the time before his service. And I reconciled with my mother and my father. There's an organization, Hands at Work, that um, our church, this organization is based in South Africa. Uh, we partner with them. They care for the most vulnerable children that have been impacted by the AIDS pandemic, which is still a thing in Africa. Now, one of their mantras, one of the things they do is they always run to the problem that the children are facing. They never run from them. A few months ago, we prayed about this, but when the violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo, also known as the DRC, when it started to directly impact the kids that Hands at Work serves in a region in, called Goma, the care workers, they ran to God by running into the fight, running to these and finding these lost kids to protect them, to provide a refuge for them. Today's psalm has four stanzas, four stanzas that I want to unpack for us. But before I do that, I want to start at the end. I want to start by sharing the conclusion of today's psalm and today's message, and that's this. I believe that the heart of this particular psalm, that the truth, that, it, the truth of that heart comes from the last sentence of that psalm. And the last sentence simply says, all who take refuge in him are happy. See, the main point, and sometimes preachers like to call it the, the big idea of today's passage, the main point is this. The only way to flee from God's wrath is to run to God's refuge. You know, the, the two stories I just shared to start us off, the only, the only way to address the hurt, the pain, the anger, the wrath was to run directly to God. And the only way for us to flee from God's wrath, which we're going to look at, is to run to God, to run to God's refuge. Like I said, there are four stanzas in today's message, uh, passage, uh, and I believe these four stanzas paint this a pretty good picture of what today's big idea, the theme is. And so let's look at the first one. The first one in verses one to three. Uh, and this particular stanza, it is speaking for the nations or those who are against God. It says this, why, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. You know, a few months back, there are five churches. One of them uh, is a mega church in Southern California called Saddleback. These five churches were disfellowshipped or removed from the Southern Baptist Convention, also known as the SBC. And they were removed because they decided to bring on female pastors, Right? Now, as a result of this disfellowship decision by the SBC, Saddleback decided to appeal. They wanted to appeal the decision made by the SBC, and they wanted to do it at the SBC's annual meeting, a very public place. 
Uh, a few weeks ago, I was in San Francisco, and during that time, I was asked about my opinion about this particular situation. Uh, the goal was to see where I stand regarding uh, passages that seem to exclude women who uh, feel that they've been called by God from taking the role of pastor or elder. And I'll tell them, I, I explain my interpretation of whether godly women might be called by God to serve in this particular manner as pastors was absolutely irrelevant to the situation. Because my concern with the issue that they were bringing up to me, asking me about, was about how the whole situation was being handled. Because rather than stepping away from the SBC because of a difference of interpretation on non-salvific matters, they agree on how we are redeemed, but non-salvific... The SBC has never wavered on how they interpret scripture with issues like racism or women serving as pastors. They've never changed their stance on that. Saddleback could have simply did what we did. What we decided to do when we realized we cannot abide, we left the SBC. But, but rather than stepping away, Saddleback decided that what they want to do is fight the SBC's decision. I'm not opposed to them fighting it, but as a result, the world witnessed the infighting and the arguments that harm the gospel, harm the gospel message that we are so desperately trying to share. I had a friend call me up from, uh, and ask me about this whole situation because they read about it in the New York Times. Not in Christianity Today or something like that, the New York Times. My concern is not and was not with Saddleback or the SBC's interpretation of scripture on this fact. Rather, my concern was with how our ability to share the gospel to those who have yet to hear about Christ's redemptive work on the cross, how that has been impacted by it. Because now they're distracted by it. See, when David asked, why do nations rage? Why do people plot? He wasn't asking a philosophical question. He was asking a very practical, very real one, a question that still is relevant to us today. Why do those who don't love our Savior, why do those who hate our God, why are they so against the gospel message? David explains in verse 3, his, ration, his understanding, his rationale. It's because the gospel message that we are trying to share, it looks like something that hinders people, that hampers people, that halts people instead of helping them. The gospel message that the world sees, the world hears, it looks and feels like a burden, typically because of how so many Christians behave in the name of Christ. It's not always the case, but more often than not, the reaction I've received, I've gotten when talking about Christianity, rarely is it apathy. More often than not, it's antagonism. Because in today's society, often when the truth of our need for Christ's redemptive work on, on, on the cross, when that is shared, people bristle. They get pissed. This reaction, though, it, it's not new to us. It's been around. It's obviously something that was happening in David's time. I don't know if it's got, gotten worse or not. I, I don't think so, but I do know this. I think that the extra weight of the requirements many well-meaning Christians have put on the gospel, priorities and requirements that God never prioritized or never required for redemption, people hear the word Christian as a result and think, no, I don't want to be tied down by this antiquated belief system that doesn't understand the real world we're living in today. It doesn't apply to me. It's not relevant. Because 
honestly, all they see is the infighting. They see the guilt Christians seem to be pushing. All they see are the fallen leaders. All they see is the abuse and the trauma that the church inflicts. So many of my friends, those who, uh, uh, when I mention that I'm a Christian, I'm not even talking about <laughs> telling them I'm a pastor, just that I'm a Christian. So many of my friends who are outside of the faith will immediately tell me why Christianity isn't for them. You know, they'll say things like, look at all the spiritual leaders. Well, all the leaders who have spiritually or sexually abused their congregations. They'll say things like, Christians are just racist. Martin Luther King is famously quoted as one saying, it is appalling that the most segregated hour in Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday. Nations rage and people plot because they look at the church, they look at the body of Christ, and they think, I do not want to be a part of that. Nations rage and people plot as they say things like, I do not want those chains on me. I do not want those ropes binding me in my life. The folks we try to present the gospel to, rarely are they apathetic about the gospel message. They are antagonistic to it. And to tell you the truth, I understand it. I understand why. Half of my job as pastor at this church has been to break through the legacy of trauma that we've experienced, the legacy of patriarchy, the legacy of Western theology that's tied people down, to have help people understand that. And remember, we are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. We are the beloved of God just as we are. Half of my job as pastor is to create a new understanding that reminds us that there is no longer slave or free. There are no longer male or female. Half of my job is just to remind us that heaven is intended to be a multicultural, diverse kingdom ruled by our Father in heaven. Now, even if we were to take away all the baggage that our society today attributes to faith, to Christian faith, I'll tell you, I don't think it would take away, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't take away the fact that nations will rage and people will plot. Because at the heart of it all, even with all that, the gospel, the reality of the gospel can only have two responses. Jesus, Jesus either draws you in or Jesus repels you away. Because the truth of the gospel, it provides wisdom that goes against what the world prioritizes. See, the gospel can draw you in. Jesus offers us his yoke that's light and easy to carry. In Matthew chapter 11, verse uh, 29 to 30, it says this, it says, take my yoke, or, or my burden, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And some hear that, and some are drawn to that promise. Others are repelled, because the reality is, they don't want any yoke. Others believe that they can escape the burdens of faith by denying the Savior. Not, not understanding that the reality is this. There is no escape from burdens at all. The gospel provides us an easier one to carry, one with help from our Savior. So this first stanza is presenting the perspective of the nations or the peoples who are constantly struggling to go against God. Or, as we talked about a few weeks ago, These first three verses are showing the perspective of those who deny God and who have decided to live as fools. 
Now, the second stanza, verses 4 to 6, as we unpack that, is God's response to that. Let me just reread that again. It says this, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I don't know if you've ever had an instance where you have seen somebody trying to do something for the very first time, something that you've done forever. Uh, you know, for those of you who uh, have to use Excel, you know, the very first time you see somebody try to use a function, you know, equal sign or something like that. The very first time, for those of you who just got out of college, the very first time you watch somebody try to do laundry, which is quite funny. I've seen a lot of pink clothing among some guys. Uh, that's... If you don't know what that means, that means you're putting your red clothes with your white clothes and washing them as hot or medium warm. Don't do that. Um, if you still don't know what I'm talking about, talk to me afterwards. Um, I can teach you how to do laundry. I can't remember who, was I, who I was with, but I, this past week I downloaded um, uh, threads onto my phone. <laughs> And uh, the folks who were with me, they were just, I, I feel like, maybe, I, maybe I'm reading into it, but I feel like they're just smiling at me uh, as I was trying to figure out how to get it working. I don't know why it was so hard. I, I felt like they were watching me and thinking, oh, isn't that so cute? Uh, old Pastor Abe is trying to be cool. No, I, I've opened it once since I downloaded it. I don't understand it. That, but this is the image I get when I read this stanza. Because the nations rage and the people plot against the creator of the universe. And God goes, really? God sees humanity's attempts at rebellion and just laughs. But God doesn't just laugh. It turns out he comes down to God has installed his king, our savior, because he doesn't want us to go it alone. He wants us to see our mistake. And he wants us to be helped by him. Because the Messiah has come down from heaven to redeem us, not just to ridicule us. So this first stanza is written from the perspective of fools, and the second stanza is written from the perspective of our almighty God. Our almighty God who, who sees the laughable attempts of humanity to rebel and laughs. But he doesn't just laugh. God also comes down. And then we get to the third stanza, verses 7 to 9. And this is written from the perspective of the Messiah, the, specifically the one mentioned in verse thing, 6, the, the king who was already installed on Zion. Starting in verse 7, it says this, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of, your, of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. It will shatter them like pottery. Psalm chapter 2, for context, is often considered what's something called a messianic psalm. Right? Basically, a messianic psalm is one that's describing the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, a good rule to follow when you want to identify whether or not a psalm is a messianic psalm is to look at the New Testament, to see if the New Testament references that psalm as being about the Messiah. In this particular psalm, Psalm chapter 2, this is the second most referenced psalm about Jesus. The very first one, as FYI, is Psalm 110. So we're pretty sure that this is a messianic psalm. I'll show you. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, 
for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, this is from Isaiah, I will be his father and he will be my son. This author is quoting chapter 2, verse 7 of the Psalms. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, it says, In the same way, Christ did not exalt himself to become a priest, but God who said to him, You are my son. Today, I have become your father. That is, again, from verse 7. One more from Acts chapter 13, verse 33. says this, God has fulfilled this for us, the children, by raising up Jesus, as it's written in the second Psalm, specifically pointing it out, you are my son. Today I have become your father. See, all these authors, and you'll see more if you look for them, more references in the Gospels as well. All of these authors are pointing out that this Psalm chapter 2, this messianic psalm, is pointing to Jesus as Messiah. And so we can say with confidence that though David may not have known when Jesus would come, he knew the Messiah would come. David knew that Jesus the Messiah would come and Jesus the Messiah would be angry. Oftentimes, uh, I don't know if you've ever said this or thought this, many people I've talked to think, they'll say they don't like the God of the Old Testament um, because that God seems to be all mean, fire, brimstone kind of God. But Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus is cool. Jesus is kind. Jesus shows grace. He shows mercy. He shows love. But if you truly read Scripture, you, you, you see that that Jesus is just as liberal in talking about the wrath of God as the writers of the Old Testament were. But I think there's a, a difference in how Jesus talks about it. See, the wrath of God in the Old Testament is often placed on the physical world, on, on my possessions, on my, on my person. But the wrath of God that Jesus speaks of is oftentimes on the spiritual world. God, God's wrath in the New Testament it is typically about our souls, about our eternity, about hell. And this key difference seems to be enough for most people to make the old sound worse than the New Testament. Because people are a whole lot more impacted by the tangible, at least in their minds, than the intangible. Most people probably don't take hell very seriously or seriously enough to worry about because it falls in the intangible category. See, in the Old Testament, God's taken away, you know, my job, my house, my family. God's wrath impacts me right now. And, and so as a result, a lot of folks read that and they feel like, oh, that's just unfair. That's not right. But taking away eternity in God's presence, meh. It's not as big a deal. But don't miss this. God's wrath, it is absolutely present in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And with that in mind, number, stanza number three of today's psalm, it is pointing out that this wrath, that the Messiah is going to execute God's wrath. And this wrath will be executed by the Messiah by destroying the foolish on the day of judgment. Jesus' purpose on earth is to establish a new world order, to bring the new heaven, to bring the new earth. He will, and he will utterly demolish anything that will impinge on that, that will stand in his way. Revelations chapter 19, it points out that the Messiah is going to rule with an iron rod or scepter, as it's described in verse 9. 
The nations that rage and the people that plot are going to be vanquished and are going to be destroyed. The foolish will be removed from the presence of God forever. But I don't want to leave with just the doom and gloom because the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, they are the same God. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this God is absolutely slow to anger. This God is absolutely slow to execute his judgment because he wants, he desperately wants to give all of his beloved every opportunity to come to him. See, Jesus, because we are unable to be righteous without him, Jesus died so that we might take on his righteousness. And Jesus paid the price so that when God looks at those who call Jesus their Messiah, so that when God looks at his beloved children, he might see us as righteous because Jesus is righteous. And through this, God makes the nations, not just Israel, not just Jews, makes the nations, that's including you and me, God makes us, gives us our Savior's redemption and righteousness. That becomes our inheritance and our possession. See, this first stanza shows us the perspective of the fools of, uh, in God's eyes. The second presents us God's response to those fools. The third, it presents the promise of our Messiah, of the Lord's anointed one, through whom and to whom we will become redeemed. And then we come to the last stanza, verses 10 to 12. Just read that again. It says, so now, kings, be wise. Receive instructions, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son or He will be angry and you'll perish in your rebellion for His anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in Him are happy. Um, I'm running out of time and we do have a picnic to go to. So I want to start wrapping up. Two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm chapter 14 and uh, I shared how wisdom uh, comes when we seek and when we obey God's will and God's word. This last stanza of Psalm chapter 2, it points us to the same truth. To be wise in God's eyes, to seek wisdom, we must receive God's instruction. We must serve God through odd obedience. And it says that we must respect the work of God. I started us today with the end. Let me end with the last end. The end. The only way to escape God's wrath, I said, is to run to God's refuge. God's wrath, as described in both the Old and the New Testament, it is coming to those who rage and plot in vain. And God's refuge is available to all those who seek God's wisdom by the power and by the mercy of the Messiah. That's what this psalm, I think, is pointing us to today. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.